The following was recorded by the Zen Society, located in Shemong, New Jersey, near Philadelphia. Please visit us at thezensociety.org. God, you are present in the whole universe and in the smallest of your creatures. You embrace with your tenderness all that exists. Pour out upon us the power of your love that we may protect life and beauty. Fill us with peace that we may live as brothers and sisters, harming no one. O God of the poor, help us to rescue the abandoned and the forgotten of this earth, so precious in your eyes. Bring healing to our lives that we may protect the world and not prey on it, that we may sow beauty, not pollution and destruction. Touch the hearts of those who look only for gain at the expense of the poor and the earth. Teach us to discover the worth of each thing, to be filled with awe and contemplation, to recognize that we are profoundly united with every creature as we journey towards your infinite light. We thank you for being with us each day. Encourage us, we pray, in our struggle for justice, love, and peace. Amen. Grant us peace, source of peace. Grant us peace. Sim, Shah. 
Shanti Om Shanti Om Om Shanti Om Om Shanti Om Shanti Om current election has had a spiritual impact sent rippling through society and impacting people's lives. This simply isn't like a victory of Republicans over Democrats or vice versa. Let us be clear again about what happened. This country elected as its president a person who aroused evil fears of racial bigotry to gain political power, who blamed and demonized vulnerable immigrants, who displayed the most vulgar behaviors toward women, who expressed wholesale mistrust toward Muslims, who tried to criminalize his opponent, who attacked the functioning of the free press, who dismissed threats to the planet's sustainability, who promised to wall America off from outsiders, and who pledged to protect the economic security of the nation's most wealthy, even while shielding his own wealth from public accountability. The inner lives of many have been thrown into spiritual disequilibrium. Even while we search for political responses and may find encouragement in the unprecedented mobilization of the millions marching on every continent, we need to discover the roots for resistance and creative public engagement that can be spiritually sustained for the long run. At a lunch with friends from church to process the aftermath of the election, my wife Karen said, Donald Trump is going to say or do something every day that will arouse us emotionally. And we can't allow ourselves to be stuck in that place of continuous arousal, responding to him. We have to find safe spaces to support proactively the things we are called to do. I'll put it this way. When they go low, we go deep. This is a letter written, surprisingly to me, when I first read it, on May 10th, just recently, by a representative of the Catholic Pontifical Council for Interreligious Dialogue. And I bring it to you tonight because I feel it is most appropriate for our discussion. Dear Buddhist friends, 
In the name of the Pontifical Council for Interreligious Dialogue, we extend our warmest greetings and prayerful good wishes. We wish to reflect this year on the urgent need to promote a culture of peace and nonviolence. Religion is increasingly at the fore in our world today, though at times in opposing ways. While many religious believers are committed to promoting peace, there are those who exploit religion to justify their acts of violence and hatred. We see healing and reconciliation offered to victims of violence, but also attempts to erase every trace and memory of the other. There is the emergence of global religious cooperation, but also politi pol politicization of religion. And there is an awareness of endemic poverty and world hunger, yet the deplorable arms race continues. This situation requires a call to nonviolence, a rejection of violence in all its forms. Jesus Christ and the Buddha were promoters of nonviolence as well as peacemakers. As Pope Francis writes, Jesus himself lived in violent times, yet he taught that the true battlefield where violence and peace meet is the human heart. For it is from within, from the human heart, that evil intentions come. He further emphasizes that Jesus marked out the path of nonviolence. He walked the path to the very end, to the cross, whereby he became our peace and put an end to hostility. Accordingly, to be true followers of Jesus today also includes embracing his teaching about nonviolence. Dear friends, your founder, the Buddha, also hurled a message of nonviolence and peace. He encouraged all to overcome the angry by non-anger, overcome the wicked by goodness, overcome the miser by generosity, overcome the liar by truth. He taught further that victory begets enmity. The defeated dwell in pain. Happily, the peaceful live, discarding both victory and defeat. Therefore, he noted that the self-conquest is greater than the conquest of others. Though one may conquer a thousand times a thousand men in battle, he said, yet he indeed is the noblest victor who conquers himself. In spite of these noble teachings, many of our societies grapple with the impact of past and present wounds caused by violence and conflicts. This phenomenon includes domestic violence, as well as economic, social, cultural, and psychological violence, and violence against the environment, our common home. Sadly, sadly violence begets other social evils, and so the choice of nonviolence as a sty style of life 
is increasingly demanded in the exercise of responsibility at every level. Though we recognize the uniqueness of our two religions to which we, may, we remain committed, we agree that violence comes forth from the human heart and that personal evils lead to structural evils. We are therefore called to a common enterprise. First, to study the causes of violence, to teach our respective followers to combat evil within their hearts, to liberate both victims and perpetrators of violence from evil, to bring evil to light and challenge those who foment violence, to form the hearts and minds of all, especially our children, to love and live in peace with everyone and with the environment, to teach that there is no peace without justice and no true justice without forgiveness, to invite all to work together in preventing conflicts and rebuilding broken societies, to urge the media to avoid and counter hate speech and biased and provocative reporting, to encourage educational reforms to prevent the distortion and misinterpretation of history and of scriptural texts, and to pray for world peace while walking together on the path of nonviolence. Dear friends, may we actively dedicate ourselves to promoting within our families, our communities, and social, political, civil, and religious institutions a new style of living where violence is rejected and the human person is respected. So good evening. Good evening. Thank you for coming out. So I invited my brothers of many years here tonight, our newly initiated Chimon to my right, Rabbi Simon, as some of you know, and my brother Jim Casa, deacon from Sacred Heart Church in Mount Holly, New Jersey, to join me with you tonight to explore an urgent matter of our times. Often you have heard me quote the saying, the surest way to have our lives go on the way they always have is to keep doing it the way we have always done it. I believe that we are at a pivotal moment in history. We can choose to respond to the endless cycle of suffering and violence and injustice and war and poverty and discrimination of all sorts and kinds, the way we always have in the past, or we can, as the letter from the Catholic Cardinal invites us to, discover new ways of living in our world. Ways that are certainly ancient teachings for modern times. Teachings that both, and I'm sure my brothers would agree with me, Jews, Christians, and Buddhists, have yet to fully embrace for themselves. And the reason for this hesitancy or direct refusal in many cases to fully embrace the teachings 
of being peacemakers in the world. Wherever we find violence, wherever we find war, wherever we find injustice, has to do very much, I believe, as we discussed on numerous occasions and as we discussed as, er, as currently tonight at dinner together, has to do with understanding the difference between reacting to the current events of our history as opposed to responding to it. We need to cultivate a ground for response. It is not enough to be angry. It is not enough to simply collectively and individually express that anger in the streets or even at the ballot box. We need to educate those who oppose such thoughts as one people, one planet, one world, with respect for the dignity of the myriad of life forms, by educating them and ourselves in the ways of peace. As the saying in the, right, in the uh, reading I just shared with you went, when others will go crazy, we go deep. We go in. When they go low, we go deeper. But what does that mean for us, both as spiritual people, religious people, monks, lay people? And again, I must emphasize that in order for us to respond to what is definitely the fruition of generations of hatred and bigotry and greed and indifference to others, in order for us to respond skillfully and effectively, we need to be prepared to respond. That just simply expressing our emotional upset about the matter will not meet the needs to transform this world into a peaceful planet. There is the ancient scripture saying, to conquer the Romans make you no different than they. To react to our opponents, to react to the, those who may disagree with us by just simply being angry at them about their behavior makes us no different than they. As the letter from the Cardinal suggests, as all of the Buddha Dharma teaches, and as the life of Jesus represents, and the teachings of the mystic Torah certainly brings forth, Peace must begin within me, and my life then become an expression of that peace I find within myself. Until each of us commit to the work of truly establishing a ground for cultivating the seeds of peace and nonviolence and loving kindness and compassion within ourselves, we will never, no matter how much we may oppose and protest, we will never, never establish peace on earth. We will simply repeat history as we have done up to this time. I would like to also take a moment to read something else to each of you. It was in my meditation one morning, and it had to do with a sense that I have had for many years in my efforts to understand the vision of the founding fathers of this nation. We hear on the news regularly, consistently, 
brought out, put out, breaking news of all sorts on issues having to do with the Second Amendment of the Constitution. Rarely do we hear until recently, with the threat of a free press, mention of the First Amendment. And I want to read that amendment to you. I brought it here purposely tonight to read it to you and offer to you a different view of the amendment as I see it. It reads, the First Amendment of the Constitution, Congress shall make no law respecting an establishment of religion or prohibiting the free exercise thereof or abridging the freedom of speech or of the press or the right of people peaceably to assemble and to petition the government for a redress of grievances. Often when this amendment is brought to the floor for discussion, we find it brought in piecemeal. If there is a matter of the press, as we are seeing now in our history, being threatened, we talk about the First Amendment and how it protects the right of the freedom of the press. Or if it is a matter of protesters being arrested simply for, as the amendment suggests, peaceably assembling to petition the government for a redress of grievances, we talk about the First Amendment as the freedom of speech. Or again, in matters of the church, especially when those members of religious institutions view the behavior of government or other people as an effort to oppress them, we talk about the First Amendment as the freedom of religion. But when I read this amendment, I read it differently. I read it in this way. The First Amendment, and the reason why I believe the wisdom of the writers of this document wrote it this way, and put it there as the First Amendment, not the second, not the third, not the fourth, but the very first one. I believe that they were pointing to something else for us to understand. I believe that they were certainly establishing in this new nation fundamental rights to freedom of speech, the freedom of the press, the freedom of religion, and the freedom to assemble, assemble to address grievances. But what they were also saying to us in the writing of this amendment was something that is fundamental, especially in Buddhism and the other faith-based traditions in their original teachings. With every right we possess as a citizen, and we most certainly do, guaranteed by the Constitution, possess the right to speak free speech, a free press, a free practice of religion, and again addressing government for our grievances. But they were telling us also that not only do we have that right, but with those rights come a responsibility. I believe that our forefathers were saying to us that each individual citizen has the responsibility, not only the right, but the responsibility to speak up, to rise up, and to oppose tyranny and injustice Wherever we see it, it is our responsibility, whether one is a Buddhist or a non-Buddhist, those of us who claim to be spiritual hold the responsibility to rise up and oppose tyranny wherever we may find it. Second, he was saying to, they were saying to us that the press has a responsibility, that the freedom of the press was not just 
written into the Constitution to protect an establishment of the press, but that the press, along with the individual citizen, and finally, along with religious institutions, have the responsibility to rise up and to oppose tyranny wherever we find it. This is both a citizen's responsibility and those of us who claim to be spiritual and those of us who claim to be religious and so forth. We find that very context for existence, both as a citizen of this nation and as spiritual people, we find that in all of the religious teachings as well. We find it in the life of Jesus who opposed such things with his very life. We find it in the life of the prophets of old in the Torah's teachings, and we find it most certainly in the Buddha's life whose mission was to stand up against the tyranny of his time he found in India in the caste system, for example. However, as that is our right and our responsibility, all of the teachings emphasize that we need to be able to respond, which is the core meaning of this word, responsibility. We can only give the world what we have. And if we have yet to find the peace within us, then we must go deep and find that peace. Again, as I said a moment ago, if we are simply expressing our anger and our dismay and our discontent in, in even in massive forms as in the millions we've seen gathered in the streets since the election, that is not enough. We must bring peace and nonviolence, both verbal and physical nonviolence, and wishes of loving kindness to our enemies as well. And we must learn how, that is to say, we must find the resources within ourselves to sustain our resistance to tyranny through, spiritual, through spirituality and through faith. This is the true meaning of resistance and the true heart of resistance. Well, thank you for coming and to be with you. It's been some time, so uh, for those of you who don't know me, uh, you have a new friend. Um, Remember years ago, the movie The Godfather, there was this one scene there where Don Vito draws together the heads of the five families because there was a war going on among the, uh, the mobs. And so he asked this question at the very beginning of the meeting. What have we done to make this all happen? Where have we gone wrong? How did this all happen? My own son was brought back because he was in trouble. This must not go on. So essentially, how did this happen? How? A little over 125 years ago, in response to the Industrial Revolution in our country, but more specifically in Europe, where the dehumanization of people was really starting to take its effect. The farms, the people on the farms, the people who in the agriculture started working in the cities in ungodly situations, in the coal mines in Pennsylvania and so on and so forth. Um, and the companies basically took over control of their lives. Didn't even pay the people money. They paid them in company stamps. The only place you could spend the money was at the company store. Nice. No one was protecting the people. If a father lost his job through an accident, 
uh, on the job. It was ex and there was debt within the family, and most all the families had debt to the company store. Remember Tennessee Ernie uh, Ford song, "I owe my soul to the company store." That's where it comes from. The son, who might have been nine, ten years old, was expected to take up the work of the father and to go work in the mines at 14, 15, 16 hours a day. <coughs> Ungodly, isn't it? In our own country, less than 125 years ago. And in Europe, it happened the same way. And the wisdom of Pope Leo XIII at that time introduced something shocking to the church and to the world. He wrote Rerum Novarum, his encyclical letters, a cyclical letter which basically addressed the situation of the human condition, that this must not go on. And he drew from the strength of the spiritualist perspective to change what was to follow. Eventually, a president named Theodore Roosevelt, possibly one of the greatest in our history, understood this reality, what was going on in his own country, and also responding to the growing need for labor unions, AFL-CIO, and so on. And so he changed the policies as a result in this country here, through that understanding that from a spiritual perspective and from a reasonable perspective, this must not go on. How do we get here? This is ungodly. Our people shouldn't be suffering this way. And so he introduced, he was the first to introduce a universal health care system. Can you imagine that? Back in 1906, and we're arguing about it today, it makes no sense. So the situation we face very clearly is that in 125 years, the, church, the church's teaching on social justice has continued to expand beyond just the, the economics of it and how it affects people on the local level. It also now comes to, when I read from a uh, passage here, the, the prayer from Pope Francis, Le Dao Si, which was his encyclical on climate change, but more importantly, as, as, as Roshi said, on the care of our common home. Uh, it, it goes beyond just the idea of climate change. It goes into the understanding that we cannot pillage not only the very natural resources we have, we can't pillage people. People are made in the image and likeness of God. How do you lose that perspective? And when we do that, we disgrace ourselves, especially when we elect people that disgrace people calling people names, disregarding them. That doesn't make any sense. And, it's, and it's, at, at its very core, I say it's evil. Now, we could react, as Roshi says, we could react and be angry and all of this kind of stuff. And it, it ha has happened. I have my sister-in-law, she calls me up every other night. She watches MSNBC until the cows come home, and she gets angry. Rachel, I know we know Rachel Maddow's over with, because she calls up, giving me everything what Rachel just argued about. She said, you watch Rachel. I said, no, that's why I have you around. I'm watching something else while you're watching. Now give me the skinny on it, okay? And we could respond. And what Pope Leo XIII did back in the 1890s, he responded. He says, our church can no longer allow this kind of injustice to continue. We must look at it from a spiritual perspective and look to make changes legislatively and in terms of trade, in terms of economics, and in terms of health, so that the people are the ones who are, who are cared for. Did the Pope just dream this up out of his own head? No. The ancient teaching of the Anawim, the ancient Hebrew teaching, was that people are to look out for those who don't have, those who are the weakest. This goes back thousands of years. And so that's the result of someone. So Pope Leo drew the strength of the traditions going back long ago 
to incorporate it into what became new Catholic social, social teaching and has continued on here now. Uh, I think his encyclical came out about 1897 it was, and here we are now 120 years later. And we're still looking to explore this teaching. How could it become better for us so that we do, we respond, not react. Now, we have an election that takes place. The one candidate basically is doing what Roshi said, playing on the fears and the anger of people out there. I think that Donald Trump, uh, what he exposed was basically an underbelly that's always been there for a long time. And why? Fear. Anger. Okay? And, and I think that he tapped into that and he caused that to be so. Because I think if, if that wasn't so, uh, as I've told him at dinner, what he would be basically looked upon as being in that drunk in the bar at 2 o'clock who doesn't shut up. But the people encourage him to keep on going because he's funny. He's amusing. You know? He's entertaining, but you wouldn't let you wouldn't let the drunk president. In the morning, the drunk will wake up. You'll be sober. <laughs> Maybe with a headache, but the rest will be entertained the night before. But it continued, right from June 16th, 2016, to right till now, and it continues to go on. So, where, what are we to do? And I, and I would suggest that the responding is the important part. Um, as I, I've, I've told my sister-in-law, as she would go through her tirades there uh, at 10 o'clock at night, if she's not watching Larry O'Donnell. Oh, by the way, we heard the latest. Larry O'Donnell's show may be uh, canceled at the end of his contract. I'm not sure if you know about that. Why? Because Comcast, who owns MSNBC, is putting the squeeze on him to get rid of him. Take away your rights to information. When was that done before? Mm. On the name of a dollar. Be careful. And I think that our response, as Roshi says, needs to be a spiritual one and needs to be one that continually reminds people of how we can be better people and how we need to be able to continue to work in the endeavor to make life better for all people, not to lose hope, not to be angry, but to respond and to do it with a sense of purpose and a sense of diligence. As I've told my sister-in-law, get everybody out to vote. Because you know what, unless you vote, the anger just basically goes up there somewhere. The voting is a changing thing. And that's, that, and that, that becomes the agent for, for the response. Keep working at it, don't let it go away, but allow the idea that we can do something creatively and responsibly to make the changes necessary. And that would be my encouragement for all of us here tonight. Um, and, and to look for the warning signs when they do come around. As I was mentioning to, uh, uh, to a rabbi tonight, Rabbi Richard, uh, I recently read uh, Donald Trump's book, The Art of the Deal. And uh, when I tell this people, they always have a smile on their face. Like, you didn't write that. Well, it doesn't matter. The book was written in 1987. And I read it very closely and highlighting it and underlining certain sections because the kind of stuff that you hear today and what you've heard for the last almost two years was all in the book. Okay? That book should have been a warning uh, label. That has warning labels all over the place in that book. I think that if Hillary Clinton, uh, uh, Cruz, and Rubio, and Kasich, and all the rest, if they had taken it seriously, they would have been able to use it against them within their own debates. But they probably just dismissed he didn't write the book. So what? 
but the warning labels were there, the warning signs were there. And I really do think that uh, had the Germans taken in consideration Mein Kampf long before Hitler became you know, uh, the leader, the, the, the warning signs were there too. So sometimes we need to be aware that sometimes the, the, uh, the information is just don't ignore it. Don't, don't, don't dismiss it. Because behind it comes an evil that is dangerous, dangerous for all of us. Um, in closing, I'd like to uh, uh, tell a story about what happened when my father used to be a salesman for Hunt Foods uh, back in the 50s. Up in New York, he had a whole section of Brooklyn that he was in charge of to make sure that the stores would carry Hunt Foods. And so uh, one time he goes in there and he says to uh, the store owner, he says, I noticed that you have a lot of dog food on the shelves. You know, it's really taking up a lot of space. I like to be able to take more of that space up myself. He goes, no, you can't have it. He goes, well, why are you selling so many? I don't see that many dogs in the neighborhood as you drive through the streets. And so the store owner says, oh, it's not for the, do- it's not for the dogs. He says, who's buying this stuff? He says, old people, poor people. They're coming to make hamburgers out of this stuff. I sell it by the tons. This is about 1956, 57. Hmm. Not that long ago, is it? And did you hear recently about cutting more and more uh, programs that will be affecting poor people and, and uh, uh, people without means? More and more. So while he's doing his dog and pony show by entertaining the crowd in the professional world of, of, of uh, professional wrestling world of politics now, what the Congress does is undermine it by coming up with these laws that are getting signed in, okay, and will have its, its effect. So it's just something to be concerned about. 120 years ago, there was a response to what was going on in the culture, in the society, in the country, and in Europe too. And we responded. Situation in the 50s, situation like that, there's needs for a response. And in the 60s, we were able to improve on that with the, uh, the Great Society of LBJ. It doesn't take much to put it away. And my, my, my prayer for all of us is that, uh, that we don't get mad. That doesn't help. That, that, that's at the core of mad, angry is, is, is violence. But allow us to respond in kind to what we need to do to be a benefit for all people. That's my prayer for each one of us. Any Hebrew speakers? Mm-hmm. So in Hebrew, uh, the way you ask how are you is you say, for a boy, you say, Ma And for a girl, you say, Ma Shlomech. You know that word, Shalom? So often we translate, we say, Shalom is hello, goodbye, peace. But it's much more than that. It comes from a Hebrew word, Shlema, which means completeness, wholeness, harmony, balance. So in Hebrew, when you ask somebody how they are, you're saying, how's your balance? How's your harmony? How's your completeness? What's going on inside of you? And the answer often is this say there, which means in order. Everything's in order. Everything works well. So it goes back to what my brothers have mentioned. What is your sense of peace? What is your sense of wholeness that you're coming from? Because when we react outwardly, when we react from our ego natures, our emotions that are out of control, we don't get a real genuine take on what's going on, and we don't get a, a, a real genuine reaction back. Little of what happened politically this 
past year or so uh, was a surprise to me because I wasn't just listening to the facts and the numbers and the polls and all that, but I was watching the emotional reaction of the people. And what we know, and what we, if you haven't learned anything, please learn this from what happened. Emotional reaction overtakes intellectual decisions every time. To this day, I still have people coming to me and saying, but it's not logical and rational. It's not logical and rational. I've been sharing a lot, maybe too much. Uh, my favorite, the, the political cartoon that absolutely sums it all up is from The New Yorker. It's a cartoon about, it shows a, a passenger in a, in a passenger plane standing up and saying to the passengers there, the, the captain and the pilot, the pilot is not sensitive to our needs. Who wants me to take over flying the plane? <laughs> and that's what, isn't that perfect? That's exactly what we've done. We made somebody the pilot who has no clue on how, why should you be the pilot? Well, I'm a billionaire. I know. The, oh, you know, that means you know how to fly a plane? No, but I'm a billionaire. So I get to do the job. So rather than, so all this intellectual stuff that, that, that guides us, uh, we're learning some very, very important principles that when somebody forcibly, somebody in authority comes forward and forcibly says, this is the way it is, we, we buy that. The people who are most susceptible to that from studies in human nature are people who say, you can't fool me, I'm smart. Those people are goners. The person who says, I'm going to look at my shalom, I'm going to look at my inner nature, I'm going to look at my beliefs, I'm going to look at my psychology, and then and I'm going to be very careful about how I'm reacting to things. Then I'm going to make some decisions but not rely on that, what I think is my intellect, which really is not so much your intellect. I told this story before about in the 1960s in uh, England, they put this Nobel Science Prize winning astronomer on TV and radio, and he was talking about there was an alignment of planets uh, on a such and such a date, and if everybody were to, at a certain time of the day, if everybody were to jump up in the air, they would notice that they don't quite come down as fast because of the effect on the gravitational field. And he gave all this scientific explanation and everything, and they said, call up the stations, call up the TV shows, and let them know your experience. They got 1.4 million telephone calls and responses saying, sure enough, I jumped up in the air, I noticed something kind of funny when I came back down to Earth. Well, it was April 1st, <laughs> and it was all a hoax. Mm -hmm. But because someone in authority said it and was so convincing, a, a huge numbers of people believe it. And that's what we're seeing in the world today. So as Roshi has said, the important thing is not so much what happened or what we're concerned about for the future, but what is the root of all that? How could that be? How could that happen? What do we have to learn about human nature, about ourselves? What do we have to be careful about to make sure that something like this doesn't happen again and that we continue for the universe to proceed in a, in a positive direction, for humanity to proceed in a positive direction? In Jewish tradition, we have our Torah. Torah is the first five books 
of what most of you probably call the Old Testament, right? Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. We read the Torah every week so that we finish all five books in a year. So right now, today, we concluded the book of Leviticus. And the, the next to the last chapter of the book of Leviticus has the following message. In the original Hebrew, it goes, Im If you follow my rules and follow my commandments, here are the wonderful blessings that you're going to get. There's going to be enough rain. There's, the, your enemies will retreat from before you. There's not going to be any sickness. There's not going to be... No one's going to get ill at all. There's not going to be any war. No one's going to threaten you anymore. And I, God, will be with you. I will be in your presence. About seven verses of blessing. And then it says, but... Dum, da, dum, dum. If you don't follow these rules, 49 verses of curses, including horrible things like you're going to eat your children. Can you imagine? It's just horrible, horrible stuff. So the question comes up for us throughout all time, what are these rules? So in ancient times, that was an easy answer. Here's the, you know, the Bible lists. Here's lists of rules. And they, can, they contain things like this is how you treat slaves. Yes, you're allowed to have slaves. This is how you, you know, when you have uh, as many wives as you want to have, this is how you, you, you have wives. Oh, by the way, you have to go into the land and kill everybody who's not Jewish. You have to destroy all other places of worship. Things that hopefully we look at today and we go, ooh, we don't, better not be following those rules any longer. That's all in the Bible. That's all in the first five books of, of our shared Bible. So the question comes up, what would the commandments be? What, would, what are the things that we need to follow for today? And if we follow the evolution of humanity, even though we have periods of time and incidents where we could say, how horrible, this was terrible. We had uh, Inquisition and Crusades and Holocaust and all kinds of problems. In general, society has absolutely gotten better. There's no question about it. We're living longer. Infant mortality is... is way, 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 way down. We're, we're doing much, much better as a society. Don't get caught up in the romanticized, oh, you go back in time, people were living in peace and you know the tribes were so peaceful. It's, we have no evidence of that. The evidence is to the contrary. There was a very warlike place as you go back in time. So things are actually better now. Far from perfect, but better now. And if you follow the trend of how things are going, what made things better? We got rid of, for the most part, we got rid of slavery. We didn't indiscriminately kill. We stopped being aggressive and taking over other countries and other peoples. And we see what happens with radicals that haven't learned that lesson yet. You know, Judaism has been on the scene for almost over 3,000 years, almost 4,000 years. Christianity has been around for a couple thousand years. Uh, Islam hasn't been around for a couple thousand years. So they're still learning that, that lesson that the rest of us had to learn about you don't go out and kill everybody who doesn't believe you. Now most Muslims, of course, have, have accepted that lesson. The small minority are still going through those changes and trying to learn that. But that reflects back to our inner nature. And what is it we're supposed to be doing as a society to help us bring about the greater and greater evolution that humanity 
is heading towards or is, is experiencing. And finally, I want to uh, talk to you about, there was a great Talmudic scribe, his name was um, Hillel, Rabbi Hillel. He lived about 17, 1800 years ago. And he said the following, and this I've seen quoted and often not, not, with, not attributed to anybody. It's like, oh, this is a great saying, but they don't realize it comes from Rabbi Hillel. It goes like this. If I am not for myself, who will be for me? If I am only for myself, what am I? And if not now, when? So we have to learn from that lesson. We absolutely have to look at ourselves and our place in the universe and how we interact with all and what we want to do to keep that interaction pure and holy, what we need to do. We have to be for ourselves, not in a selfish, oh, there's only one of me ways, but in a way that says, I am here and I'm connected to all other things through the web of life. But if I am only for myself, what am I? When we make decisions in life, when we make political decisions, we make any kind of decisions, we have to do it with a mind towards our connection with all. And when do we have to do that? We have to do that now. I studied with a great rabbinic teacher. His name was Rabbi Zalman Shachter Shalomi. He, um, he practiced all different kinds of, of um, spirituality. In fact, he even started a Sufi, an Islamic spiritual organization. This rabbi started an Islamic spiritual organization and was ordained as a sheikh, as a sheikh in that organization. Uh, which is still in existence today. But I once asked him, when he was talking about, a few years back, he was talking about the, the doom and gloom and where our country is heading, and uh, thank God he didn't live to see Trump elected. It could be that kind of a good thing for him. But he, I said to him privately, I said, look, you know, we believe, a lot of traditions have this, there are the great Buddhist masters who will take care of everything we're not worried. There's the great Sufi masters who will take care of everything we really want to learn. We have the Jewish masters, what we call the, the 36 holy men that keep the world in existence. And they really, really have everything in line. And we worry and worry and worry, but there's no need to because they have everything taken care of, right? And he looked me dead in the face and he said, I want their phone number. <laughs> and he said to me, don't you get it? We are them. You know, we are them. We are the ones that are responsible for the fate of the world and the fate of each other and how we live together. So, so lately I've been, been going around deputizing people, you know, or, <laughs> ordaining people with that task. Because it truly is our task that everybody in this room has their piece of the action, has their piece of what's necessary to bring about what we call in Judaism, tikkun olam, repair of the world perfection of the world. Each of you, each of us, has to do that. Look deeply into your nature. Look into your shalom. Look into that peaceful, harmonious part of you. What, what we call it, when I read these rugs, Buddha nature. Right? Look deeply into that, and then make your decisions. So, how do you fill a zendo up of more than 16 and 17 people to come together and talk about an urgent matter that can and should and will result 
in the future. You appeal to people whose interest is larger than themselves. In the ancient mystical texts of the Buddha Dharma, we find the teachings on what is called the spinning of the Dharma wheel. The first time the Dharma wheel was spun was in the awakening of the Buddha himself. The second time the Dharma wheel was spun was when the Buddha first began to teach the first teaching of the Four Noble Truths. This teaching goes on to talk about the next Buddha, the next enlightened one, as the rabbi made reference to the idea that we are always waiting for a hero, someone who will come and save us from ourselves and from a world filled with so much suffering. And in the Buddhist teachings, the next Buddha is the Sangha. The next spinning of the Dharma wheel is when Buddhists realize fully their interconnectedness with others and the myriad of life forms and rise up collectively as community, as Sangha. Now this is just not the meeting of minds or like-mindedness. This is, as I talked about it at dinner tonight with my brothers, when I go to the ballot box in 2018, I do not vote only from the place of my anger, my discontentment with current political situations. I do not vote from the place of my party affiliation. I vote from the place of a vision for all the people, for a nation whose concern for the welfare of all of its people. I vote from that vision, and that is what we mean by community. That is the solution for the future. When the Buddha talked about the poisons of life, the things that literally kill life, poison life, he identified three of them, greed, hatred and resentment, and indifference. When we take a look at our world, when Jim, in his wonderful portrayal of the Godfather, you should see some of his other invitations and so forth, asked the question, how did, we, how did it come to this? How did we get here today? We need to just simply look for where the poison is. Greed, again, is the first poison the Buddha identifies for us. But greed is not just the lust for money. It's not just the lust for possessions and wealth. Greed takes the form of, again, living a life with my own interests alone in mind where I make choices and decisions in how I'm going to live, who I'm going to be with tonight, where I'm going to be tonight, according to my own desires, my own needs. That is also a form of greed. Resentment and hatred. We see it everywhere in this nation. We have seen it before, and as Jim's historical account pointed out, it started to get better. Maybe not for everyone but certainly better for a nation at the time. And we have returned to a place where we are divided by hatred and resentment 
for our neighbor, not just some stranger in the, near the borders of Mexico, but for our neighbor and our neighbor's children and our neighbor's family and our neighbor's dreams and hopes for themselves. And finally, which I believe is the one I would have started with, indifference. Indifference to the suffering of others. This ego talks about its suffering. It talks about suffering from a place of what it experiences. In community, we open our hearts by going deep and taking a look at ourselves and looking where we have allowed greed and resentment and hatred and indifference to find a home in our hearts. And as Rumi would say, we dismantle those systems within us in order to allow a reawakening, allow a renewal of heart and mind. It must begin there. And in community, again, I do not make decisions, even the decision to whether to meditate with the community tonight, based solely on whether I'm too tired or whether I don't want to or whether I got this to do or what have you. Remember what I said earlier. Our freedom of choice, for example, which is another illusion, but that's another night. Our freedom to choose brings with it a responsibility. A responsibility to make choices that benefit others and not just myself. More than 42 years ago, if my mother was correct, she said I was born this way. Somewhere in my youth, I consciously made the choice to live my life in relationship with the myriad forms of life, in relationship with the planet, in relationship with others. And somewhere along that line, that evolved into a passion to serve others. With it came a price, and with it came responsibility. And with it also came great rewards, like these two men on both sides and all of you. And my sister Mitsumiko, and my brother monks who had just recently entered this path, and so on and so on. But with it came, again, a real sense of beingness in the world. All of the great teachers have said, His Holiness the Dalai Lama says, if you want to make the world a better place, be compassionate and loving kind to others. If you want to be happy, be compassionate and loving kind to others. Thomas Merton wrote these words that resonated in me as, a, as an 11-year-old youth when I first read them. He said, we do not find the meaning for our lives apart from others. We find the meaning for my life with others, in others, and so forth. So we can go on doing it the way we have always done it, where we over here oppose them over there. We can get angry and allow that anger to dominate our conversations and discussions around the dinner table or in the restaurant or at the bar with the drunk or anyone else for that matter. We can continue to do it that way. We can continue to go to the ballot box and say, I'm voting for this one because she's the right sex 
I'm voting for this one because he's the right party. Or we can begin to change the future by choosing to vote from a vision for the world that I believe every one of us here share. A world where all the people, a government by the people, and for all of its citizens, where everyone has health care and everyone has enough food and everyone is respected and everyone's dignity is recognized. The vision of our forefathers, if you will. The vision of the Constitution and the Bill of Rights. The vision of the ancient Torah and the vision of the Gospels and the vision of the Buddha Dharma. We need to become visionaries. We need to become citizens with a vision, not citizens just with an opinion or party affiliation. You know, we were talking about at dinner how many years this nation functioned without political parties. They had no political parties in the beginning. They had individuals who stood up ready to take on the task of leading, take on the task of creating a vision for the future. So again, the surest way for this to continue, and it will. History has proven that as long as we keep doing it the way we have always done it, it will continue to, what is the word? Resound. Re re uh, it will continue to vibrate, if you will. Resonate. Re huh? resonate. Resonate. Not just repeat itself. It will continue to resonate in every corner of this nation if we don't change the vibration. This vibration of greed and hatred and resentment and indifference will continue as long as we act greedy and resentful and have only thoughts for ourselves. As the rabbi said, as my brother Chiman said, yes, we need to think of ourselves, but we need to think of ourselves in relationship to everyone else. And we need to develop our spiritual strength and faculties for love, the most powerful force in the universe that we don't see regularly because we don't do it regularly. We need to develop our inner peace and happiness in order to bring that into the world. And we need to do it as one people made up of many, but one vision for all those many people. Until then, nothing will change. And all we will be doing is reacting and reacting and reacting. And, you know, nothing will change. Your turn. Nancy? I hear what you're saying, and I think everybody in here agrees with you 100%. And I think everybody in here tries their best to do what you say. Go out into the world every day, open your hearts, be a peaceful person. There's a bot coming. That's all I have to say. <laughs> and you're preaching to the choir right here. We all know these things and, and I think everyone who's here this evening really makes a huge effort to find that peace within themselves and then take it out into the world. Successfully and not so successfully from time to time because we are just human. Um, no, we aren't. 
And we need to stop saying that. But we can't, we can't just make that a saying. You know, Chardin not only said we are spiritual beings, he went on to say in the second paragraph of that quote, we need to live our lives as if that human limitation that those words conjure up do not exist. You see? So we need to live in a way that we honestly believe that every living form on the planet merits freedom. And I believe that. And okay. I think every But we can't, can't make excuses that. that we are just human. We have to stop doing that. My words were wrong. Okay. We need to, we need to require ourselves to get out of our comfort zones. And that's too comfortable. I'm just human. I'd like to add something. On, on no, let, let her finish. Oh, let her finish. <laughs> my question and my issue comes in, then what? Uh, when, after the election, when I was reading, after we got over the shock, when I was reading the results and reading how did this happen, they talked about basically middle-class white men who suffered the most in the recent recession. I understand that. He's lost his jobs more times, well, I can still count it on one hand. Five times, he's been laid off. So we, we perfectly understand their fear, their pain, what they're going through. But they also, when Trump stood up and spoke, believed that their jobs were coming back. Mm. And I was, all I could think of was, your jobs aren't coming back. It is not Obama's fault. Quit blaming Obama. Quit accusing Hillary of whatever you're accusing her of. It's technology. It's, it's the way of the world. It, it is what's happening. You're believing a lie. I don't know what to say to those people. Anytime I try and engage someone who believes those kinds of things and has a Trump supporter, they start screaming Obama and Hillary at me. I don't have words for that. I don't know how to... I tend to react because I get really pissed off. You're in the wrong fight. What? Okay. okay. You're in the wrong fight. One of my favorite books of the Old Testament is the story of Job. Now there's a guy who went through worse than losing a job. Okay? I mean, he went through living hell. And in the end, when he wanted to know why, God basically says, I'm not telling you why. Okay? Which says to me, we're in the wrong fight. The fight is not about gathering people to agree with us. The fight is about creating within us the, no, the, the courage to live this way despite what is going on in the world. This is not about collecting agreement. This is about living this way. One of the other ancient teachings is, do not be daunted by the ways of the world. I sat with another friend of ours at lunch one day, Sister Maria Alwa. I sat with Maria Alwa one day after being very sick, coming out of the hospital, having a conversation like this about what was going on in the world, and she was eating her little sandwich and being quiet and listening to me. And she looked up at me and she said one thing to me. 
You know, Roshi, we're not to be daunted by the ways of the world. And she went back to eating her little sandwich. Okay? So you're in the wrong fight. This is not about, what did I say a moment ago? People whose interests larger than themselves will come. The flower does not chase the bee. The bee naturally goes to the flower. Okay? So you're in the wrong fight. And this is a fight I hear you describe in many different ways over the years we've known each other. That's the wrong fight. Work on yourself. Become a pillar of courage and nobility. And that presence is what the world needs. It doesn't need people trying to get people's votes. It doesn't need that. I'm not interested in convincing anyone in this room about anything. I'm expressing my point of view, as my brothers are tonight, of what we think is needed. And what is needed in the world are people... I wrote this the other day on Facebook. I believe in the infinite power of love. I believe in the infinite power of ordinary people choosing to live extraordinary lives rooted in purpose and integrity. I believe in community and the power of those very same people coming together to live for a purpose greater than themselves and for the benefit of others. I believe that those people are the true silent majority. They are raising their children, going to work every day, paying their share. They know who their neighbor is and respond with a helping hand when needed. They hug their spouses and children before they leave home each day and never go to bed without saying, I love you. They fall to their knees or sit on their cushions before laying in their beds. And when darkness covers the earth, they are the lights at the end of the tunnel. They are the dawn of humanity. Do not be daunted by the things of the world. So you're fighting the wrong fight. Stop trying to convince others about what to do. And stop coming from a place thinking you need to fix others. You need to fix what is within you and then nurture that every day by the way you live your life. And your presence alone, I believe, that every single person's presence in this room alone made a difference tonight in this room. They may not even speak a word tonight, but the moment you came through that door, you made a difference in this room, in this monastery, and in the world, just by your choice to be here, just by your decision to not go drinking whiskey or wine somewhere and to come here for this conversation. I believe that. I believe that. And that's what we're talking about is missing. We have forgotten how to live nobly in the world. And because we have forgotten how to live nobly, we've gotten the leaders who have no idea about no <laughs> noble living. You know, someone said, whether we like it or not, we get the leaders we are. We get the leaders we are. And as long as it's okay for me to not be responsible by living a life that is noble and true and, and with purpose and all of that, why are we so surprised we get the leaders we do? So stop that fight and get into the, get into the, into the real fight. And the real fight is for Nancy. If you really believe this, then live it 
with your husband, in your home, with your children, with your spouse, with your siblings. With your, just be that person in the world and watch what will happen. Watch what will happen. It doesn't feel like enough. It doesn't matter that how it feels. You're not listening. God didn't care how Job felt. God didn't even care how his own son felt on the cross. Okay? It doesn't matter how it feels. Do you think I feel like this every day? 42 years I've been having this conversation. I can go to the beach. You see? I've got Zen students. Who does that? You see? It doesn't matter. You're not listening to me. That conversation doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. So, well, you guys well, one thing I think that uh, is, is our actions are important as well. Uh, I went to the uh, Congressman MacArthur uh, uh, Willingboro uh, Town Hall last week. I didn't get in. Uh, <laughs> I was one of the hundreds and hundreds that were outside who couldn't get in. Uh, but, but you have to remember that that facility was booked by the local Democrats to invite them to come into a town hall before they ever took the vote. So, I mean, it wasn't intended to be that. It was meant to be him participating. And that's why they only had set up maybe, maybe about 300. The policeman said to me, if you hold 300 in there, you're lucky. And there's four or 500 outside, so not, not a good thing. But anyway, I said, well, you know, if I, I, I had one question, you know, and outside it, it really kind of affirmed it for me, the, the comments that I had with the people just chatting with me on the line, waiting to get in there, you know. And one of them was, it came up with the health care issue, because that obviously has, had, uh, took uh, front, front and center. I says, you know, to come in with this grandiose, let's repeal and replace, repeal and replace, and all that. And that became, you know, the, the mantra of the campaign by everybody on that side. Um, like I said to the person, two, three people next to me on either side, I said, you know, what I don't understand is, if something is broke, you fix it. So if there's something lacking in the Affordable Care Act, okay, whatever works, you keep. Whatever doesn't work, you fix. Is that, is that you know, that, maybe that's not sexy enough to repeal and replace. But that would make sense. And I think that that becomes the, 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 uh, the intelligent approach. So I sent an email, because I'm on uh, Congressman MacArthur's uh, email list. I get these updates every week or so from newsletter stuff. And on there, there is, if you want to contact him with your question. So I just wrote out my question right there. I said, wouldn't it, wouldn't it be the, the, the beneficial thing to do to, rather than repeal and replace, which was, which was really just campaign fodder, why not simply do the intelligent and, and more, you know, and, and, uh, and the, the better way to go to fix whatever was wrong? So I sent it off, and that was last Wednesday, right? <clears throat> I haven't gotten an answer yet, but he's only gotten until Monday to respond. <laughs> I'm getting back on Monday. I just I did copy that entire note that I sent off to him. I'm going to copy that again and send it off in a letter because I want an answer. I want, I mean, I really would like to know why wasn't that the approach? Because that's not what everybody campaigned for. And like we were talking at dinner, is this going to be a situation where we have, okay, well, we're in power, let's shove through our plan. 
and the other side doesn't participate. Now all of a sudden this other group gets in, now they shove their thing through rather than at the expense of this crowd. So we're going to have this ping pong game going on back and forth every four to eight years regarding important life, which affects all of us. Again, the issue is they work for us, and that one little girl, little girl, 17-year-old, high school kid, I was amazed. I would never even have the audacity. Well, she really put it right soon, but I was watching it on, on the Facebook feed when I got home that night, and she just said, you know, about the situation, is, is rape considered to be a pre-existing condition? And she put it right to him. The answer is yes or no. And then he goes on some bit of that. No, that's not the answer. Yes, well, that's not the answer you want. Well, no. no, the answer I want is a very simple one. And she's 17 years old, this kid. I was impressed to no end. I probably wouldn't say that, but she did. And I think that becomes a situation that we need to be responsive in what we could do that makes some sense. I, and and if, if this congressman doesn't respond again to my written letter after next week, okay, I'm going to make a copy of it, stick it in my pocket, and whenever he shows up and something I'm, I'm at, I'm going to take it out. I'd like to have the answer. So I think that that becomes, in terms of what we face over the next few years, um, an intelligent approach. Continue to do what we need to do to make the world better. And, and not attached to the results. Yeah, mm -hmm. but, but, but you deserve an answer. Yeah. I deserve an answer. Okay, and I think that that's, that's, that's a charitable and responsible thing to do. Now, if you come up with some copy maybe answer, well, that's another story. But, you know, you know that, that is what it is, right? So, uh, but, I, but I do believe that, you know, uh, I do deserve an answer on that. So, so I'll, I'll let you know. So, I want to say I think you're in the majority, the way you think and the way you approach it. I really do. I think most people look at things and, and approach things that way. What can I do? It doesn't feel like enough. How can I convince people? I think that's, uh, uh, that, that's how most people react. And like Roshi quotes often, you know, if you keep doing the same thing over again, you're going to get the same results. If people continue in that consciousness, we're going to keep getting what we have. What's, I, your very first question was, what's the, how, what do we do? What's the alternative? What's the prescription? You need, you know, you, you've been given a diagnosis, now you need the prescription. You need words. You need, you, you need words. Well, what words? We, I, make an appointment with me, I can give you hours <laughs> of words. You're not going to do any good, but I can give you all, all the words you want. To quote, um, uh, um, what's the Star Trek uh, little guy's name? Yoda. Yoda Buddha, right? Mm -hmm. There is no try, only do. Mm -hmm. okay? And we offer the alternative to where you are. This place offers the alternative. If you were to continue to come here, and I know you come regularly, but if you were to come here and come, with, come here and sit with us and study with us, maybe take some spiritual direction from us, you will, within a period of time, it won't take very long, figure out whether your approach to how you're looking at the world, this goes for everybody, whether the you, way you're looking at the world continues to hold water and make sense, or whether you need a, sh a paradigm shift, whether you need something else to happen and put you in a different position and <coughs> different way of thinking, maybe more in the direction that Roshi indicates. But that's the prescription. The prescription is spiritual practice. That's what you, everybody, needs. Without that, we're going to continue, God forbid, going in the direction that we continue to go in. We're ripe for the change of spiritual growth. In, in, the, um, in the Jewish um, 
eons calendar of where we are, these are the days of the Messiah. The Messiah is here. What does that mean? The Messiah is here. It means that, like unlike ever before, every human being on this earth has the potential to become enlightened. The tools, and, and I love the term, spiritual technologies. The spiritual technologies exist for us to help you to open your eyes and, and to be enlightened. They all exist. And that's what we do here. So whoever's interested, come here. And that's where we really are. You won't have constant watching of cable news network tell you that. It looks like we are at a place with a nut in power and a party of greed running the show. But we are being challenged in a way that these people, including Donald Trump, are now the resources that can bring about global transformation. We saw just a few days after the election, we never seen anything like that before, where within a matter of 48 hours, millions of people, probably for the first time ever, actually took responsibility for their lives and for the world and so forth. We are, we are being challenged by evil Kind of like asking, let's see how really you believe in love. You're saying? We are at the threshold of a transformation that our ego will not permit us to even consider as the real issue here. The real issue here. We can continue to do it the way we have always done it. As Jim described it, we vote and this party goes in and gets four years to play their game and then the opposing party goes in, gets four years, and we've got this ping-pong back and forth with people's lives. With people's lives. We can continue to do it that way, or, or we can recognize that there's a larger purpose in all this, and that is to finally step up and open ourselves to this cosmic evolution that is calling us to finally be the messiahs, be the Buddhas in the world. No one is coming. No one is coming. It's up to you now. I believe that's what he said when he ascended. I believe that that's what the prophets were saying. I believe that that is what the Buddha Dharma teaches. We've given you, you know, you want a prescription? You've had a prescription for thousands of years. I'm not coming back to convince you. Now it's up to you. And I believe that that is really where we are right now. Everything feels desperate for a reason. Not because of who's in power, but because we don't believe we are the real power. That's why it feels desperate. And the moment you start believing that you are the solution, it won't feel so desperate. I don't feel desperate. I don't feel a need for somebody to come in and save me. Yeah, I'm sorry. How, did, how then does a Buddhist monk set himself on fire? What is he attempting? I, mean, I, have, I don't really expect you to have an answer. You ask, that, well, you, well, you ask that question as if that's a Buddhist thing. No, I that don't. That was a man that who happened to have been a Buddhist monk 
who did that, and you'd have to ask him. I have no idea. I'm not really was, I, interested in, in that kind of protest. Okay. Well, I was trying to square that with, I'm, I'm making an assumption, I understand, that he has some beliefs in common with you. Um, well, you know, that's, I know let, that's me, a let, me, let me respond there, because that's a very good uh, thing to look at, okay? I was born and raised Catholic. One of the things that attracted me to the Buddha Dharma is that there's no such thing as Buddhist beliefs. It's not like all Buddhists think alike, okay? So when the Buddha taught that you are Buddha, and, and, and most Catholics aren't aware of the fact that in the Catholic, and correct, you can quote me if you like, <laughs> that in Catholic teachings, even the Catholic Church says, your consciousness is the first hmm. conclusion to what, what to do. Am I correct? You're right. Okay. In the Buddha Dharma, you're not to follow some kind of Buddhist philosophy or belief. You're to, as the rabbi suggested, as Chamon suggested, you are to look at your own heart and find the solution in your own heart, and so forth. So I think that we can better understand what a Buddhist monk is doing, this one in particular, when we understand that. Okay? So, and that's what I'm saying to Nancy. Nancy has to learn to trust her heart, and so does everybody else in here. And when you do, you won't feel so desperate about the situation. And you may set yourself on fire. And you might do that. Not well, me. I guess that's where I was wondering. Not me, because I don't like Something the summer heat. Person that <laughs> an incredible step yeah. Yeah. that he thought was, well, I don't know what he thought. Well, perhaps I mean, he lived, you have to remember where he was living, Vietnam. It was a desperate situation whereby a whole, I mean, I could, the Vietnamese people felt this, it was all over that it was never going to be anything other than the suffering. And maybe that's what drove him. I can't answer that. Mm. It's happened in Tibet, in rebellion to, uh, to the Chinese government. There are Tibetan monks that have emulated themselves also in that way. Is that the word? Emulated. Emulated themselves also in that way. But why they do it, I don't know. It's not, again, my form of protesting. Okay. I'm right in it. <laughs> Any, okay, thank you. Any other questions? Hi. You know, thinking about the political situation over the last few years, I do hear in my mind that, that saying not to be influenced by the ways of the world and certainly not to be attached to the outcome. I mean, there are people, we've, we've had political people I see in the work I do at the state level where they do vote their, what they think is right. And you don't hear about those folks at the state level because a lot of times destructive bills never even get out of committee. And they fail by a vote of just one because somebody actually voted their, um, their conscience. And I do think even at the federal level, you know, that's really the, the key to find people that really uh, are not attached to the ways of the world and do, aren't attached to the outcome. And I think of one particular individual, um, a woman, Congresswoman from Montana, who was very, very active 
in getting uh, women the right to vote. As a result of that stance, you know, she became the first congresswoman in this country to be elected. World War I comes along and she votes against the war. One of two or three people voted out. But because of that vote, later on, people saw this person had integrity and was voted in again right before World War II. Pearl Harbor comes along. Here she is faced again with this decision. She became, she was the only woman, only person to vote against uh, entering World War II, thereby denying a unanimous vote in Congress. Voted out, but continued on and fought uh, against, protested against the Vietnam War. So when I have that person in my mind, that's the kind of people that we really need to identify mm. and to really foster to get elected. Because those are the people that really are going to make some significant changes to what we see today. Yeah. I think that also with the, um, that woman uh, in her winning the congressional seat, she couldn't vote for herself. That's right. Yeah. <laughs> she was she hadn't had the right to vote yet, but yet she could run. But she actually won yet wasn't able to, to vote for herself. Interesting. And by the way, her name is Jeanette Mikey. And do you think that her motivation was anything else than to be true to herself and true to her purpose and true to her vision? That's all that mattered to her, just as that that's all that matters to the Bodhisattva. There is a saying, even if the sun were to rise tomorrow morning in the West, the Bodhisattva knows only one way. And so the saying interpreted means just that. The results do not matter. Stand your ground. Stand your position. That's what matters. Be true to yourself. Be true to your uh, vision, be true to your purpose. That's what changes the world. That's what changes the world. Don't get daunted by the ways of the world. Don't get distracted by what's going on in the world. Stay the course. Stay the course. That's what matters. The Buddha's teachings to his monks came down to one sentence. Live the noble life. Period. All of his instructions to his monks and his disciples came down to that sentence. Live the noble life. Period. That's all he expected. St. Ignatius writes, love God and do what you want. Live the noble life. Love God and do what you want. Because when we are always coming from that place of purpose and integrity and nobility, that's what changes the world. We don't have enough of that going on. We don't have enough of that going on. And when she was asked after that vote, the one that denied unanimous vote to enter the World War II, she said, well, 
somebody had to represent all the mothers that were with the children. Mm -hmm. Do I know you? Me? Yeah. Yes. Yes. You might know <laughs> No, I know you. I've never been in this facility. No, that's not. I didn't say I knew you here. <laughs> well, um, or today, or this old, year, or this year. The age that um, think uh, my quest for knowledge was uh, finally answered when a priest and a monk and a <laughs> rabbi walked through the door and I finally, <laughs> finally <laughs> got the answer. Sounds like a joke. It is a joke. Thank you. Uh, <laughs> I'm a therapist. There's a joke here. I'm a drug and alcohol counselor, a therapist, and. Um, Alfred Bandura is a famous psychologist, and he came up with the theory of modeling. And so we learn by modeling others' behaviors. We mm -hmm. learn, uh, you know, intrinsically how to behave and how to be by that of the people around us. Yes. And so, in part, the answer to your question is, how do you do this? Just be you, and each individual you meet, you can influence them. You can't take the whole weight of the world on your shoulders. Just go about your life, and to Rabbi's point, come here, and I think I would like to come here more often, and, and gain spiritual uh, bliss. So. so don't just like to come here, come here. <laughs> well, I just moved to the area. I don't know about I don't know. I'm from Philly. I don't care where you are. If I you see want, this Mets socks and priest there, and it's freaking me out a little bit. Right before we right here, listen, so. right before we came in, we told him these socks were going to cause yes, trouble. Right. <laughs> I'm from Philly, and this is ungood. <laughs> I'm from New York, and this is very good. <laughs> thank you, thank you for, for allowing me uh, to be here. So, I heard Nancy say a moment ago, we all believe this. So, if everybody believed this and then took it to the most important step, actually lived it in the manner we've been talking about so far tonight. Don't you believe that will cause change? No? You know, it's kind of like, it's kind of like, you know, we come from a place that we, in our culture, it's all about me. But imagine what it would be like if my thoughts were about you, your thoughts were about me, his thoughts were about him, everybody was considering everybody else, and working for one other person's benefit. Well, everybody's needs would get met. It's a mathematically proven uh, formula, and so forth. So the bottom line is, forget the words. We have plenty of words. Forget the philosophy. We have ancient philosophies, philosophies that go back to the beginning of time, and so forth. It's time to be living it. It's time to stop again looking for the Messiah, looking for the next Buddha, and being the Messiahs and the Buddhas in the world. And there's not much you have to do. You don't have to set yourself afire. I'm for setting the world on fire. Set the world on fire by your presence, because your presence is light. And no one puts his light under a bushel. Yeah, I wanted to uh, just read something and that I think might be helpful um, in regards to this. Um, 
comes from Matthew's Gospel when he says this, All the nations will be gathered before him, and he will separate them one from the other, as a shepherd divides his sheep from the goats. And he will set the sheep on his right hand and the goats on his left. Then the king will say to those on his right hand, Come you, blessed by my father, inherit the kingdom prepared before you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me food. I was thirsty, and you gave me drink. I was a stranger, and you took me in. I was naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. And I was in prison, and you came to me. Then the righteous will answer him, saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you, or thirsty and give you drink? And when did we see you a stranger and take you in, or naked and clothe you? Or when did we see you sick or in prison and come to you? And the king will answer and say to them, Assuredly, I say to you inasmuch, as you did it to one of the least of these, my brethren, you did it to me. Then he will say also to those on his left, Depart from me, you were cursed, into the everlasting fire prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry, and you gave me no food. I was thirsty, and you gave me no drink. I was a stranger, and you did not take me in. You were naked, and you did not clothe me. Sick and in prison, and you did not visit me. Then he will also answer him, saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or naked or sick or in prison and did not minister to you? Then he will answer them, saying, Surely I say to you inasmuch, as you did not do it for the least of these, you did not do it for me. So I think our prayer is always that whoever we respond to who's right in front of us, that becomes it. That becomes the Christ. That becomes the Messiah. That be, whoever it may be. We do that, we're on the right path. And don't worry about the other stuff. Thank you everybody for, for all the words. It's a, it's, cha- it's a challenging discussion, that's for sure. Um, it really makes me think about uh, when we have uh, our sessions here and we do our meal times together. And we do a mealtime gather, which is a mealtime prayer. And we talk about that this very food that we eat is blessed by the sun, it's blessed by the rain, and it's blessed from the, the people that prepared it and the people that brought it to us and all, and all these pieces. And uh, as, I, as, I, as I was going on my journey here, um, I really brought that into my life. And uh, and so everything that I, that I do in my life, I... I try to see the source of it. Where is this? Where is this going? You know, um, I love Oreos. I can buy boxes of Oreos. <laughs> I can eat Oreos all night long. Make myself sick as a dog. So the Oreos are—they're amazing, right? And then I, I really look at the the source of the Oreo. What's it doing to my body? You know, it's all chemical. It's sugar. It's garbage. It, it, it's really poisoning me. So I see that part of it, and then I see the waste of the, of the, the box of Oreos, you know? All this plastic had to be made. It was probably made by people that don't want to make it. It was made in a facility that's making all this pollution. And, uh, and so every piece of my life, I started looking in, in this way, and, uh, and when I really saw the source, that this, these things were bringing me happiness, right? I thought, Oreos taste amazing, it tastes great. But when I really saw that my happiness was connected more to, to misery, then I just I just didn't want to I didn't want to be a part of that anymore. And so little by little I started dropping these things out of my life. 
and, uh, and it went with the food that I eat, the things that I watch on TV, the words that I speak, and all these different, so many aspects of our life, you know. Uh, there's a great line from a book, and it says, we practice these principles in all our affairs. And, and when I really look at my affairs, it's the way I deal with people, it's the things that I put into my body, it's the rest that I give myself. And, uh, and it's really powerful when, when I can see it from that, from that angle, that everything has a source. And if I can see the good in each of these things, then I can either engage in them or pull back from them. And, and, and the pulling away really isn't a negative anymore, it's a positive, it becomes a positive. Uh, when, when I see it from, that, from that, that point, is this really happiness or is this really misery with a little tingle of joy on top? <laughs> a little spring, a little sugar and whipped cream, you know? And, uh, and so I really see that as um, when we speak of, you know, difficult things like uh, uh, politics and religion and spirituality that each one of these are really based in that source. What is the source of this, you know? And the source is we all want happiness. And it's just how am I, how am I gaining that today? Am I gaining it through misery or am I gaining it through, through true joy? And, uh, and we all have the ability to do that, to really see the source of these things. Each thing that I put into my body that I invite in my life. And uh, it's an amazing world. So, thank you. There is no enlightenment apart from renunciation. Therefore, we see renunciation as the gate to the kingdom, the gate to the pure land, and not a negative, as Genjo just said. So the monk spoke. So you don't have to be a monk to live like a monk, but you have to live like a monk. There's your prescription. Thank you for the privilege of being with you tonight. By the power and the truth of our efforts this eve, may all beings everywhere be free of sorrow and suffering, and the causes of sorrow and suffering. May all beings be content and possess the causes for contentment and abundant prosperity. May all beings everywhere live in peace. This is our prayer. <coughs> this is our intention.
I see a safe journey. I see a safe return. Good night. Good night.